All right. Well, man, let me just say uh, hey to everybody uh, on all of our campuses. Man, we're so glad that uh, everybody at all six campuses can uh, join with us as we uh, celebrate the birth of Jesus this week. Uh, those of you who are watching on the live stream, man, we're glad you could be with us today wherever you are in the world, especially uh, those of you who visited our church for the journey over the last couple of weeks. And now you're checking us out on the live stream. Uh, to, and we just hope and pray this service will be a blessing to you. But like we say all the time, man, our live stream is a great place to get started, but it is a really poor place to get stuck. Uh, the real blessing uh, of God comes in our lives uh, so often when the followers of Jesus get together and then we worship together, we fellowship together, we serve together. And, and let me tell you, that's hard to do on an iPad. Can I get an amen? amen? Now, if that's all you got, then that's great. But man, if you can get here, it'll be much, much better. So come join us next week as we roll out our fourth installment. Uh, in this message series that we're calling Christmas on Location, uh, where we're literally going to the actual historical places where the Christmas story took place. Now, this series is running parallel with the journey to Bethlehem, which is our biggest outreach every year. Uh, and friends, so far, the journey has just been amazing. We've had some of the worst weather we've ever had during the journey. Uh, we've had to cancel uh, the Sunday uh, journey thing twice uh, just because of rain. Uh, we, I, hate to, I hate to cancel anything because of rain, but you know, man, we got electronic stuff out there and you know, when you got 10,000 people go through, it gets a little mucky. And so, you know, we're just trying to do the right thing. Uh, we've actually though had a huge turnout, even though it's been raining and man, we're praying that many of our guests uh, will come back and find not just the story of Jesus here, but a life changing relationship with Jesus here. And this is the last weekend, <clears throat> last Friday, Saturday and Sunday. There are plenty of tickets left. If you haven't been on the journey yet, man, go get some at CompassionChristian.com and don't miss this thing. But today's message is going to focus on a family <clears throat> who actually made a place at the table for Mary when she started to carry the baby Jesus. Now, I think this story is especially timely today because we're going to start receiving our Christmas offering today. And we're going to use that to make a place at the, at the table for people in downtown Savannah, which is exactly what this family does in Luke chapter one for Mary and Jesus. Now you may not realize this, but there are actually two miraculous births in the Christmas story. Everybody knew that said, amen. amen. Well, y'all are smarter than I thought. <laughs> smarter than some of my family. But anyway, we'll just go with that. All right. Now there was one miracle of answered prayer for a couple that had struggled with infertility all their lives. Now when that miracle baby was born, they named him John the Baptist. He became the Baptist later, but he was named John. The other miracle was a virgin birth, and his, that baby's name was Jesus. Jesus. Now, there's two different kind of births here. One's a virgin birth, one's not a virgin birth. Both of them are miraculous. We'll get to the virgin birth of Jesus next week. But this first miracle birth was actually a prequel to the Christmas story, and it takes place six months before the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. So open your Bible with me to Luke chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 5. We're just going to dig into the miraculous birth of John the Baptist and how this impacted the mother of Jesus. Now, talk about Christmas on location. Look at the historical detail in verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, who was the king of Judea, there was a priest. His name was Zechariah. He was of the division of Abijah. He had a wife. She was from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. Now, friends, we could spend an hour just unpacking all that detail, but Luke's point in starting this way is to remind us of the strength of the faith of John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now just keep your Bible open uh, and we're gonna, let's, let's learn something about the location of this story. First of all, this story takes place in the days of Herod, who is the king of Judea. Now Luke tells us this because if you look at verses three and four, 
He says his goal for his book is to just lay out an orderly, accurate eyewitness account of the life and the times of Jesus. And so he starts by locking the story of Jesus into a historical time frame. Herod was a king in Israel. He was a puppet king of the Roman Empire. He was put in place because he was politically savvy. He stayed in place because he was an extremely violent man who would respond with extreme prejudice uh, to any threat. This guy literally killed a wife and a couple sons because he thought they were conspiring to take his throne, which I would classify as a little paranoid. How about you? But man, talk about a ruthless family. Uh, for example, this is the guy who ordered the execution of every male child in Bethlehem under two years of age in an attempt to kill off Jesus when he heard from the wise men that a new king had been born uh, in Bethlehem. Now, you know, we have a, a scene at the journey uh, about that very thing. Uh, and, you know, we got King Herod, you know, and his crazy paranoia. And a lady in our church named Meredith Hauber told me that when she and her husband, John, uh, brought their son Jackson uh, to the journey last week. And man, when they saw that scene, they're watching, you know, as Herod's just kind of going off and Meredith feels this tug on her jacket and she looks down and little Jackson's eyes are like this, man, and blue eyes are wide open. She said, mom, we got to go. We got to go. And she said, what's wrong, man? We got to go. He's going to kill all the little boys. We got to go now, man. And she told him all, she talked him down off the roof, right? Until he got to preschool the next day and she gets a call from the preschool. You got to come talk to your son. He is riled. He's telling everybody there's a man killing boys over at your church, man. I'm telling you what. And, and you know, and she said, oh, it's not happening this year. <laughs> it happened a long time ago, a long time ago. Now, now listen, you know, thank God the real Herod is not at the journey. I'm not sure Jackson believes that yet. But back in the day, this is like the ruthless sociopaths that you hear about on the news every day. But let me tell you, Herod was also a historic figure who was a brilliant builder. Uh, he built the city of Caesarea Martima uh, on the Mediterranean coast. Now this is, a, this is a drawing of what we think it looked like back in the day. He had engineers that actually developed a type of concrete that would harden under salt water, which enabled him to build this amazing uh, harbor on the coast of Israel. He built a beautiful theater there, which uh, I've had the opportunity to teach it in many times. Uh, he built the Hippodrome, which is basically a horse racing uh, facility. Uh, you know, you see the Hippodrome here, that theater we just saw a moment ago. Uh, we walk all over this stuff when we go to Israel to uh, visit all these uh, sites, historical sites. Herod also rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And, and listen, this is a model of what it looked like back in Solomon's day and then in Zerubbabel's day, uh, just a few hundred years well, no, uh, that was the temple, what it looked like when Jesus was actually, uh, you know, doing his thing in Jerusalem. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's an amazing thing. The, the foundation stones of that temple are still in place. And I took a crew of Compassion Christians over there last spring. We actually touched these stones. Every stone weighs about the same as a 747. And every one of them has got Herod's mark on it. Now, John's birth story... <clears throat> takes place in a particular place at a particular time, and it is just rooted in history. Uh, this story does not begin once upon a time. Uh, it begins in the days of Herod the king. Now it says there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife and the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and all the statutes of the Lord. Now Luke is introducing us to John's parents. Now Zechariah, he says, was a priest, and that would be like a pastor in our day. Uh, in Israel, back in the day, all the priests came from the tribe of Levi. 
So this is probably a guy whose dad and grandfather had been in the ministry as well. And you know, that still happens in our day. Uh, we have a new high school pastor here at Henderson. Uh, his name is Zach Epps. Uh, he has a dad who's a pastor out of Missouri. He has a grandfather uh, who's a pastor out of Missouri. This guy comes from a long, long line uh, of people who love the Lord and have served the Lord. Now, this is John Mark Romans. He's our midway pastor. Uh, this is his dad, Jay, who was a chaplain of the army and then a pastor after he retired. This is his uh, grandfather that I just call Mr. Romans because I worked for him when I was in college at Point University about 100 years ago, all right? So I'm just saying, all right? And that's his little boy, Caleb, which is awesome. Uh, but you know, this is kind of neat when you, you meet people that just got generation, generation, generation of faith, which is awesome. We also have pastors who are the first Christians in their family. First Christians in their family. So, I mean, you know, God can use anybody and does use everybody, but the truth is that faith runs really strong in some families. And man, Zachariah's family was one of them. Uh, in verse 5, it says there was a priest named uh, Zechariah. Well, I've already read that for you. Elizabeth, it says, Elizabeth was from the daughters of Aaron. You remember who Aaron is? He's the brother of Moses, all right? Uh, Aaron was the brother of Moses. He was the first high priest of, of Israel. So, man, Zechariah and Elizabeth both grew up in families with very strong faith, which sadly doesn't necessarily mean anything unless every generation is intentional about passing that faith on to the next generation. And Zechariah and Elizabeth's families were. Now, sadly, you know and I know that there are people whose dad was a pastor who can't stand the church today. They are totally disillusioned, totally disinterested in spiritual things. Sometimes they are even negative about spiritual things. And friends, we need to learn from this. Man, passing faith from one generation to the next requires strong faith and spiritual diligence. Now, you know, I've been going to every campus uh, of our church over the last month or so talking about this Christmas offering uh, and the downtown campuses it will pay for. But one of the things that's been kind of a joy to me is I've gone from campus to campus to campus, how many of the adults at those meetings literally came to our church when they were students in our student ministry. Many of them brought their dads and moms uh, to faith in Christ. And now they are adults at all of our campuses making a place at the table for their kids and for the kids of other people they don't even know yet. Sadly, you know, sometimes the love of God just doesn't get passed from one generation to the next. But a lot of times it does. And man, with Zachariah and Elizabeth, it did. But don't miss this, man. Just because your family is close to God does not mean you won't have to endure some heartache in your life. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Following Jesus is amazingly good and amazingly hard. Amen? Amen. Say it with me, y'all. It's amazingly good and amazingly hard. Look at verse 7. Zechariah and Elizabeth, wonderful folks, righteous, love the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, which means they wanted to have children and could not, and now they are both advanced in years. Now here are three things that we learned about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Number one, they were old. Verse seven says they were both advanced in years. Now I've read that back in the day, if, if, if you were considered old if you hit 60. And it don't look that way to me now. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Things look about a little bit different now, you know. Uh, but I don't know how old they were, but I mean, 50, 60 years old, you know, they were well past the age of childbearing and sadly they were barren. You know, they were struggling with infertility and, and that was even more heartbreaking 
back in the day than it is now. You know, the Bible taught in the Old Testament, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Man, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with children. And because the Bible put this high value on having children, some people just assume that if you didn't have children, well, maybe that was punishment for something. Or maybe there's something wrong in your life and that's why you can't have kids. Now, the Bible did not teach that, but that's how some people just kind of felt. And you know what? People feel like that today. You know, if they want to have kids and can't, they feel like they've been cursed or something. It's not true, but that's how you feel sometimes. Now, if you have children, I hope you feel blessed. But man, if you want a child and can't have one, I mean, that is a heartbreaking disappointment that many people in this room right now uh, have experienced. I read this week that one out of 10 couples in America struggles with infertility, 10%. Think about how many people in this room right now on, on all of our campuses know exactly how Zachariah and Elizabeth were feeling as they were getting older and older and older and had never had the privilege of becoming parents. Now, it was even more complicated in their day because it's a pretty safe guess they were poor. Now, we're gonna learn in verse 39 that Zechariah and Elizabeth were not from Jerusalem. Uh, they lived in a little town up in the hill country of Judea near a, a city called Shechem. Uh, he was probably a bivocational pastor, which means he had a job that he worked to earn a living and then taught in the synagogue uh, on the weekends in that little community. Now, I just literally talked to a buddy of mine on Monday who graduated with my uh, Sarah from Milligan College. And I asked him, man, what you been doing since you graduated? He said, well, I've been teaching school and farming and I've been preaching at a little church in Western Indiana ever since, 1979. I mean, farming, teaching, preaching in a little church in Western Indiana. I think that's awesome. I think that's the kind of guy Zachariah was. But here's what I hope you'll take home. Zachariah and Elizabeth were just simple, ordinary people. And yet they were part of God's plan for saving the world. And they made it into the Bible. You know why they're in the Bible? Because they love God and they serve God and they walk with God day in and day out and day in and day out. And because they did, God chose them for a very special task, which is why uh, Luke includes in this story the scope of Zechariah's responsibility at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, like I said, Zechariah was not from Jerusalem. He was a priest and he was in Jerusalem to honor his annual responsibility for serving at the temple. Look at verse 8. Uh, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, I had a bunch of different divisions that would serve certain parts of the year. Uh, he was in the division of Abijah. His crew was on duty. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, again, this is a model uh, of the temple that somebody beautifully built in uh, Jerusalem. And man, I'd love to show it to you sometime. But you know, you've got the outer wall of the temple here. You've got the inner wall. Uh, Gentiles could come in here. Only Jews could come in here. And then it gets progressively, progressively more exclusive uh, until you get in this tall building. It's the holy place where the incense was burned and, and the table of showbread and all that stuff was there. And then the Holy of Holies is back, back, back in the back. And that was the place that only the high priest went only once in his lifetime, one day a year. Uh, and you know, today there are Jewish people who pray on this western wall back here because that is the closest place to where the Holy of Holies was back before this temple was destroyed and then the Mosque of the Rock was built on this site and all of that. But anyway, the temple in Jerusalem was the focal point of life and faith in Israel and the opportunity to serve there, if you were in that priestly uh, you know, tribe, that was a great privilege, right? And every priest looked forward to it. And so Zechariah comes to Jerusalem twice a year with the division of Abijah to serve at the temple. 
And when they were in Jerusalem, one of the really special priestly duties that was seen to be like a once in a lifetime privilege was to go into that holy place in the temple and burn incense to honor the prayers of God's people. And they would cast lots to see who got to go all the way into the holy place to burn the incense there. And then they would burn this incense and the smoke would kind of rise up before the Lord, symbolic of the prayers of the people of Israel. And it was such a privilege that a priest could only be selected once in his life. And there were 18,000 priests. So the chance of getting picked to do this was really thin. It would be like being a pastor in America. Y'all know any of those guys? Being picked to pray at a presidential inauguration. Do you know how many inaugurations I have prayed at? Zero. There are going to be 20 opportunities in my lifetime, and I've got a bunch of them behind me, and no, my phone ain't ringing, all right? And I'm just saying what Zechariah had the privilege of doing was kind of a rare, rare, not because he's a bad guy, but just because there were so many good guys, and, and man, this is awesome that he got to do it. Look at verse 10. Uh, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the, uh, outside of the hour of incense. Now, this is a pretty big deal, right? And so people are in the temple, they're to participate with worship and all that stuff. And when the hour, when they burn the incense shows up, the crowd comes in because Zachariah is going to go in and he's going to light it. It's going to be symbolic of our prayers. But just like today, and not y'all, but other churches, people had an expectation about how long this is going to take. What y'all laughing about? You know what I'm talking about? You know people like that, ungodly people, not like y'all. All right. Now, you know, here, here at Compassion, we try to keep our, our services moving crisply. Uh, we try to end at the same time every week because we got lots of children uh, in our children's ministry and, and another service is starting in 30 minutes. And so we got to get those kids all in the right place and get cars out of the parking lot and other cars in the parking lot. Uh, and so I can't just preach on and on and on and on and on. I mean, there's a window, right? This, this thing is supposed to happen. And that's how it was back in the day. So Zechariah goes into the temple and people expected him to light the incense and be right back out. But on this day, it didn't work that way because of the supernatural news from Gabriel. Now, Gabriel is one of two angels who are actually mentioned by name in the Bible. The other is named Michael. Now, Gabriel is a messenger. Michael is a warrior. If you see Gabriel, that's going to be good news. If you see Michael, <laughs> somebody's going to get hurt. You know what I'm saying? Because Michael shows up when a rescue is needed or a threat needs to be neutralized or something like that. Now, let's talk about angels for a minute because there's all kind of confusion about this in our culture. The Bible says that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of angels. Some are holy. Some are, say it with me, everybody, unholy. Now, when you hear people say, oh, I'm very spiritual. Can I just tell you, that doesn't mean a thing. Doesn't mean it, whether it's good or bad. Friends, this is why we do not think everything that is spiritual in the Bible or in our world is good. You know, the Bible says we're supposed to test the spirits and see if they're from God or if they're from somewhere else. Because if they're from God, they will always agree with God. They will always agree with his word in the New Testament. Can I hear an amen? amen? Holy angels are servants of God who occasionally interact with people on earth even to this day. Now, Billy Graham wrote a great book about this on angels, tell some of these stories about when angelic, you know, interaction is taking place in our world. Angels tend to appear in two forms. One is where they look like just a regular person. You would never know. Uh, that's why Hebrews 13, 2 says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. 
Now, this is why when I pass some lady on the side of the road and she's got a flat tire, compassion compels me to turn around and go back and help. But if compassion doesn't compel me enough and I just drive on, I always look in the rearview mirror to see if she's still there and it wasn't an angel and I failed the love test. All right, you know? Now, on the other hand, sometimes when angels appear, especially in the accounts in scripture, it is obvious that they are supernatural beings and they scare the fool out of everybody who ever sees one. And that happens right here. Look at verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Now fear is the normal response in the Bible when anybody has an encounter with the supernatural. When Jesus did miracles, it scared his disciples to death. Some people were amazed, but other people were like, whoa, what's happening here? And man, when Zechariah meets this angel, it's obvious he ain't from around here, and it was a little overwhelming. Now, friends, think historically for a minute how amazing this would be. The last time an angel appeared to anybody in Israel was 500 years earlier when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown by the Babylonian king into a furnace back in Daniel's days, written about in his book, and then God sent an angel to protect them and later to protect Daniel when he was thrown into a den of, Don a den of lions. That's the last time anybody in Israel had said the word angel. Nobody had seen anything like that. The last time a miracle had occurred in Israel literally was 700 years earlier during the time of Elijah and Elisha. The point I'm trying to make is when Zechariah went into that temple that day, he did not expect to see an angel. He did not expect to see anything supernatural and neither did anybody else. And that's why it says when he saw Gabriel, fear fell upon him. And I bet it did. I bet it did. I read about a 63-year-old woman who was having a consultation with a young doctor. <laughs> she came bolting out of the room, screaming at the top of her lungs. She ran into an older doctor in the hallway who knew her and took her aside and counseled with her for a minute. And when he got her calmed down, he went back to that young doctor and said, what is wrong with you? Miss Terry is 63 years old. She's got four grown children, seven grandchildren. You tell her she's pregnant, you almost scared her to death. And the young doctor said, she didn't have the hiccups anymore, does she? <laughs> terrible, all right, terrible, all right. Sometimes fear can be a good thing, all right. Look at verse 13. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Apparently the angels had to say that a lot, all right. For your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John, which means God is gracious. Now here's your homework. What prayer do you think was answered there? Now you're going to probably think for a baby, for a son. If you're 60 years old and your wife is 60 years old and you've been infertile since you were in your 20s, do you think any 60-year-olds in our church are still praying to have a baby? Do you think? Let me, let me see some old, I mean some mature women here. Any of y'all? Matter of fact, if y'all got pregnant, there'd be some screaming and hollering going on, right? I'm just saying, what was he praying? What was he praying? And the angel says, I'm going to answer your prayer. Was the son the answer? Or was the son a derivative of the answer? That's your homework. Figure it out. Look at verse 14. You will have joy and gladness. 
I'm going to answer your prayer and it is going to fill you with joy and gladness and many are going to rejoice at the birth of this boy for he will be great before the Lord. Isn't that an amazing message? I mean, Zechariah, God sent me from heaven to earth to tell you that you and Elizabeth are going to have a son in your old age and not just a son. This man will be great. He is going to do great things for God. Dude, that is every parent's dream for their children. And then the instructions get really specific. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. What's the angel saying? This young buck is going to be very special. Zechariah, raise him to be that guy. Raise him to be that guy. Not like everybody else, not part of the herd. You raise him to be a great special man of God. Look how important John's life is going to be in the eyes of God. Now God is casting a vision for this young man's life. He is going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He is going to go before him. Him who? He's going to go before the Messiah, the answer, the solution, the Lord Jesus. He's going to go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, Old Testament character. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. These lame deadbeat dads are going to start thinking about their kids. He's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He is going to make ready for the Lord people who are spiritually prepared. Man, John is going to start teeing things up for the ministry of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Our world is never going to be the same because of your boy. God is going to do something great. And John is a leadoff hitter, man. This is amazing news. This is an answer to a lifetime of prayer by Zechariah and Elizabeth. But it's also a lot to believe. Amen? That's a lot to believe, man. And unfortunately, it leads Zechariah to the natural but unacceptable skepticism of the supernatural. Now, the message the angel delivers is rooted in prophecies from the book of Malachi, which Zechariah would be very familiar with. But instead of rejoicing at this message, going, oh, dude, this is awesome, he responds with doubt. Zechariah says to the angel, how, how will I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. Notice he did not say my wife is an old lady because he's smart. <laughs> he's smarter than that, right? Now, friends, it's just human nature to doubt the supernatural. It's human nature to doubt the supernatural, even if the evidence is standing right in front of you. He's looking at an angel who is standing right in front of him. Now, friends, let's get real here because we respond like this a lot as well. I mean, we're always saying, I know, God, that your word says you can make all things work together for good, but I just don't see how that's going to happen in my life. Everything looks so bleak, man. You know, I think Zachariah wants to say, buddy, before I tell Elizabeth this cr crazy story, I'm going to need some kind of sign. I mean, I, I, I'm, just not, I'm just not believing this for no reason. And in verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Basically, basically Gabriel says, dude, I was in the throne room of God an hour ago. He sent me here with the news of this miracle in your life. And you're just not sure the God who created this world can pull it off. Really? And that led to silence, a silence that was God's discipline for Zechariah's disbelief. Now, friends, we live in a culture that thinks it's hip. It's sophisticated. It's cool to be skeptical about everything, especially authority. But what we're going to see here is that when you believe in God, now, if you don't believe in God, that's a whole different ballgame. 
But when you believe in God, he expects you to want to believe and to want to trust him, even when it's hard to do so. Gabriel says in verse 20, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, isn't it interesting that when Zechariah expresses some doubt that this miracle birth could take place, he is disciplined. And then six months later, when the very same angel appears to Mary and says, you're going to have you're going to give birth to a miracle baby by the power of the Holy Spirit. She also expresses doubt by asking, how can this be since I'm a virgin? But she was not disciplined. How come Zechariah was and Mary wasn't? And it's obvious. God likes women more than... <laughs> no. You know, Tim Keller suggests, you know, there's a, there's a kind of honest doubt that wants to believe, but can't say that I understand until I understand. I mean, I want to believe, I just don't get it. I don't understand it yet. And so people like that ask questions. And sometimes it's like, why are you asking all these questions? They want to know. They want answers. They, they, they will consider the answers. They're open to believing. They, they want to believe. They just got to have more information. <coughs> They're not saying, hey, here are my conditions. You do it my way, my way, my way. They're not like that. That's not their attitude. They just want some answers. Uh, even when believing is hard, especially when believing is hard. But there's another kind of doubt that I think is dishonest. And it's all about me being in control. I'm staying in control of everything. I'm not going to be made to look stupid because I jumped in or I don't want to feel foolish. Uh, I, I, I want unsurmountable evidence before I will believe anything because I'm not sticking it out there for anybody. And apparently... That is not honest doubt. That's the kind of doubt you have when you have an interest in not believing. You have a, a vested interest, a personal interest. And, and, and apparently, God doesn't have much patience with that. And I think maybe that's where Zechariah is coming from. So, the angel says, you need a sign in order to believe? Done. You will not be able to speak a word until this baby is born. And he will be born nine months from as soon as you get back home to Elizabeth. And the angel disappeared, and so did Zechariah's voice. And in verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering what the delay may be in the temple. Just same thing some of y'all are thinking right now. Why is this sermon going so long? You know, people watching their watch. Service is running over a little bit. Look at verse 22. When Zechariah came out, he was unable to speak with them. What happened? Can't say anything. Lost my voice. Can't say I lost my voice. He just lost his voice. He was unable to speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them, but he remained mute. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but I cannot wait to get to heaven and watch the video replay on this. Can you? I mean, I just, I want to watch that. I mean, can you imagine Zachariah? What, what, what? Is a bird in there? No, it's not a bird. I mean, I don't know if they played charades back in the day, but think about it. He can't say a word, but he's got his evidence. He's a believer now. And now he's got to go home and tell Elizabeth. And in verse 23, it says, when his time of service was ended, he went home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Apparently, this miracle baby was conceived in the natural way. What the miracle was is that an older woman who had been infertile all of her life became miraculously pregnant by her husband, totally different from the virgin birth of Jesus. 
And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, look at what the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among these people. People, people are saying, you know, something must be wrong with Zechariah. Something must be wrong with Elizabeth because they haven't been able to have any kids. He calls himself a pastor, but I mean, how kind of pastor doesn't have any kids? And she's saying, look, look at what God has done for me at this stage in my life to take away my reproach from among these people. Now, you know, I'm kind of shocked that Elizabeth didn't just tell everybody the minute she found out she was pregnant. But you know, when God shows up in your life, that's a humbling thing. Amen? You know, I mean, people ask me about the church sometimes, and I tell them, I feel like a little kid. Well, you know, somebody watching your dad do something you know you can't do, but, but wow, I mean, it's humbling. And I'm also sure that nobody at that AARP meeting was going to believe her until she had that baby in her arms. And so she just waited and she worshiped the God who was doing a miracle in her life, which soon led to the special provision of a miracle child. Now, friends, the story of the birth of John almost has a humorous end. You know, I mean, you read it, it's almost humorous. Look at verse 57. The time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son, just like the angel said. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her, which is awesome. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child at the temple, which was the custom back in the day. Uh, they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he should be called John. And this is a really disrespectful thing. They said to her, none of your relatives are called by that name. And so they asked Zechariah, they made signs to the father, what do you want the child to be called? And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John, shut up and leave my wife alone, right? That's not in the Bible, but when you get to heaven, you'll see, all right? <laughs> His name is John, which means God is gracious, and man, God really was gracious to them. And immediately, Zechariah's mouth was open, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And man, fear, again, when you're in the presence of the supernatural, and you can't explain it, you don't understand it, but you see it right in front of you, Fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about all through the hillside, hill country of Judea and all who heard about them laid them up in their hearts and they looked at that little baby and they said, what then will this child be? Obviously, the hand of God is with this baby. What will this child be? Amen. I hope that's what every parent says every time a baby's born in our church. Amen. What will this child be? The hand of God is going to be on this baby all his life, her life. What will this baby be? Now, we already know the answer to that question because Gabriel told Zechariah and Zechariah told Dr. Luke and Dr. Luke told us in this book, little John is going to grow up to be John the Baptist. He is going to be the man that Jesus said was the greatest man ever born of women on this planet. John the Baptist will be the one who will prepare the people of Israel for Jesus, the Savior that God promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden in John, Genesis chapter 3, when sin first made us all need a Savior. John would lead thousands of Jewish people to repent of their sins and be baptized in water as a sign of their change of heart. At his request, John would baptize the Lord Jesus just because it honors the Lord. John would dedicate his life to preparing the way for Jesus and kind of teeing it up for Christ's ministry. And then John would die a martyr's death because of his unstoppable, courageous faith in Jesus. But friends, the first thing, the first thing John did to serve Jesus happened before he was even born. You remember what it was? In verse 39, in those days Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth, 
And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, who did the angel say would also be filled with the Holy Spirit? Little John. From when? From his mother's womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And Mary remained at that home with them for about three months, and then she returned to her home. Now, when Mary was going through the roughest time in her life, and I talked about this two weeks ago, so you remember what Mary went through when, when she got that announcement from the angel. She went to the home of Zachariah and Elizabeth, and they made a place at the table for her. Zachariah and Elizabeth made a place at the table for Mary. She left a place of judgment and disrespect where she felt absolutely alone. And she was welcomed to Zechariah and Elizabeth's home where she found a family that loved her and encouraged her and made a place for her. Maybe, though, the most encouraging thing that happened through that whole time happened when she walked through the door when little second trimester John, who the angel said would be the first person to have the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, rejoiced and responded with joy when Mary walked in the door with baby Jesus in her womb. And I imagine Mary was so thankful for the hospitality and the acceptance and the encouragement that she got from Elizabeth. Of course, Zachariah ain't saying nothing. Amen? <laughs> he ain't saying nothing for three more months. But I wonder if the most powerful encouragement that came to her was a spiritual encouragement. Didn't have anything to do about a loaf of bread or falafel or lamb chops. It had to do with a spiritual thing that happened when she walked in that room and Elizabeth, Elizabeth went, wow, the baby in my womb leapt for joy when you walked in here. And Mary was like, wow, Gabriel was right. And then Mary and, and Elizabeth start sharing their Gabriel stories and talk about their dumb husbands and all that kind of stuff that happens, you know, when you're carrying a baby and all that. And, and friends, I wonder if the most powerful encouragement for Mary was a spiritual thing happened when she found a place at the table with two spiritual people. Now, before we go, I want to address two, folks, two groups of folks uh, who are with us here today. First of all, if you're like Zachariah and you struggle with doubts, thank you for coming here today. Thank you for worshiping with us. Thank you for trusting us. Thank you for sitting through this service, man. I hope Zachariah's story is an encouragement to you. I mean, the evidence was right in front of him. He just couldn't see it yet. And thank God he was wise. He didn't just blow it off. He didn't mock it. Uh, man, he didn't dismiss this message as if it were a fantasy or something. He hung in there. He asked his questions. He listened. He observed. And then nine months later, man, he was praising his God for a miracle in his heart and a miracle in his family. You know, Lee Strobel is a, a graduate of Yale Law. He was the uh, legal affairs editor for the Chicago Tribune. And he has written a number of books called, one of them is The Case for Christ, which is great, The Case for Christmas, uh, a number of books that might help you if you're struggling with honest doubt. Now, if you have dishonest doubt, nothing's going to help you. Uh, but, but if you have honest doubt, these books would really help. Because Lee started out really skeptical, and I mean not just skeptical, but an angry skeptic about spiritual things. First time he came to a church like this, he went as a newspaper reporter to write an article debunking the church. And he just couldn't find what he was looking for, kept coming back, coming back, coming back, until he became a follower of Jesus. Now, in his book, he talks about the transformation that Jesus made in his life. 
he talked about how angry he had been as a man. He, he talked about, you know, he just losing his temper and kicking holes in the living room wall just out of frustration. He said his little girl, Allison, his five-year-old daughter, he scared her so badly that when he came home from work, she'd hide in her room. Some of y'all grew up in homes like that. You know what it's like to have that heaviness, that sadness, and you live with it every day just like little Allison did. Five months after Lee gave his life to Jesus, his daughter told his wife, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he did for Daddy. Because a five-year-old could see the life-changing difference that Christ was making in Lee's life. And if it happened for Lee, it could happen for you. So stick around, man. Ask your questions. Get to know who Jesus is. Get to know who we are. You know, last fall, I baptized a Jewish friend of mine who is super skeptical and had been super skeptical for a long time. But you know what? He was an honest skeptic. And so he stuck around and he asked his questions and he told me what he thought was crazy. And eventually that guy gave his life to Jesus last fall, baptized him right over here. Today he is growing like crazy. Thank God when that Jewish skeptic came to our church, there was a place at the table for him. Amen? Amen. Got one for you too. We got one for you too. Secondly, I just want to say to all the people in our church family who've been pr praying and preparing to make a generous gift to our Christmas offering, which is going to provide a place at the table for our downtown campus. Now, I just hope that you can see that what we're going to do this, this weekend and between this Christmas and next Christmas is exactly the same thing that Zachariah and Elizabeth did for Mary and Jesus. We are opening our hearts to people who need love and acceptance and forgiveness and encouragement. Man, we're opening our hearts to SCAD students from countries all around the world. Who are, we're opening our hearts to people who are struggling with scarcity on one side and affluence on the other. Man, we are making a place at the table for them. We're sharing our lives and our resources in a way that will make a place for people, some of whom are going through the roughest time of their life. We, are, we have their only hope right here at our church. And we're making a place where people can have a spiritual experience like Mary did when she came into the presence of Elizabeth. A spiritual experience with Jesus that will be a life-changing event for them. Maybe not loud, maybe not emotional, just life-changing. Friends, God loved us so much that he made a place at the table for us so that just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, we can make a place at the table for the people we love as well. Amen? Thank you, Father. Thank you for this opportunity you've given us to be together today. And I thank you for Zachariah and Elizabeth, Lord, people who struggled. You know, they struggled with uh, scarcity. Uh, they struggled with disappointment. Uh, they had an ache in their heart for something they wanted that just never seemed like it was going to come. And yet, Lord, they were righteous. They were strong. They stayed close to you. They found in you something, Lord, that sustained them long before they ever heard they were going to have a miracle baby. And I pray, God, that there will be people here today who will find something at our church that will sustain them, Lord, long before they understand it all, uh, long before they have, you know, every answer. Maybe they'll never have every answer. I don't have every answer. But I pray, God, that there will be people who will come here today who will have an indelible experience with Jesus that will mark them and begin to change them. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.